A holocaust is defined as great destruction, resulting in the extensive loss of life, especially by fire. Many refer to the tragic events in Central Texas in the spring of 1993 as the Waco Siege. But by the end of those 51 days, there was great destruction of the Branch Davidian compound and the extensive loss of 86 lives, including children, women, federal agents, and David Koresh, with Koresh and many members of his religious cult dying as the result of a massive fire that spread quickly through their compound. In the first of a two-part chat, I spoke with Jeff Wynn, author of Waco, the Branch Davidians, David Koresh, and the Legacy of Rage, about the evolution of the Davidians and Koresh's rise within the organization. Today, we focus on that 51-day standoff, including reckless mistakes made by ATF and FBI leadership that caused an avoidable loss of life, and how this tragedy serves as a rallying cry for anti-government movements to this day. If you haven't already, I do encourage you to check out part one before this episode for some additional context, and I hope you enjoy part two of my conversation with Jeff Gwynn on Waco. As far as the ATF is concerned, you do go over their history just a little bit. An organization created in some form or fashion in 1862 and evolved since then to collect taxes and uphold laws on things that people didn't want taxed or bogged down with laws. Things like booze, guns, and smokes. By yep. 1992, they were a poorly financed subset of the Department of Treasury with a sterling record for bloodless enforcement. So how did the ATF end up on the Branch Davidians trail? The ATF basically had been given responsibility for enforcing gun laws in America. And this is in a time, of course, when gun ownership is becoming more and more controversial. Because ATF, all of them former police officers, border patrol, military, all of them pretty much gun owners themselves. They say we're not trying to take guns away from people. We're trying to make sure that the gun laws are enforced, that no one wants to understand that. But they became a patsy of the NRA. I mean, what a great deal if you're trying to get membership in the National Rifle Association to say there's this Gestapo type group that are trying to take everybody's guns away. ATF desperately wanted a public showcase of what they did and what they did so efficiently. ATF never set out to injure, let alone kill anybody, and their entire record up to February 1993 shows that. When they first got word through the McLennan County Sheriff's Office that there had been automatic gunfire reported on the Mount Carmel property, and that a delivery truck driver had reported to the sheriff that he'd been delivering heavy boxes to the Branch Davidians. A couple fell off the truck, split open, and there were grenade hulls and quantities of gunpowder. It looked like something was going on. And so ATF's agents began a six-month investigation. And ultimately, they even found a gun dealer who was working with Koresh, they learned, you know, unequivocally that the Branch Davidians had possession of automatic weapons 
that they had changed over from semi-automatic. They had not paid taxes on them. They had not registered them. A couple hundred firearms at least. Then they start hearing from Mark Bro and some of the other disenchanted former Branch Davidians all about how the people who are left in Mount Carmel are looking for a huge fight, a lot of death to bring about the end times. They're equated by these people to People's Temples member in Jonestown. You may remember over 900 die, some through suicide, some from being murdered in Guyana. They're compared to the Manson family, that they might go out and slaughter innocent citizens. So there's a, there's a lot of pressure. The ATF is the agency that legally should go to Mount Carmel and get these guns, but how to do it? It's a compound. You've got people who are probably well-armed and apparently willing to shoot. You've got to go up a hill with no cover. How do you do it? That was a problem they wrestled with for months before they finally decided they had the information they needed to pull it off. They were told by a couple former members, yep, there's a lot of guns, but they are kept in a locked storage room and they can only be gotten out and passed around if David Koresh gives the word. That meant if ATF launched a raid, what they called dynamic entry, they could probably get into Mount Carmel and get between everyone else in the locked gun room. And that way they could arrest whoever was necessary. There wouldn't be any shooting. It would be painless. They could film it all. And then when their budget hearings came up on March 10th, remember February 28th is the day of the raid, they'll have a great film to show, look, we're efficient. We, take, we, we spared the public this dangerous situation and nobody got hurt. That is what they intended. But unfortunately, that is uh, that detail you just shared is uh, another example of the clumsiness with which the ATF went about trying to plan this mission because they were speaking with people who had not been in this compound for six months to a year, if not more, in some circumstances. And uh, as you just described, things have changed since then. And uh, a lot of folks in that compound were allowed to have guns with them, either on their person or in the respective bedrooms at all times, just in case the proverbial shit hit the fan. This information came as a great shock when I told a lot of the ATF agents about it. They'd never heard this to this day. Oh, wow. The agents who went on on the raid, the 76, called themselves the POAs, the plain old agents. The higher-ups made these decisions. The POAs carried them out. The POAs have been guaranteed two things. Number one, these guns are under lock and key. Nobody can get them. Turns out that's not true. Second thing, we will have the element of surprise. They won't know we're coming. If they find out we're coming, we'll call the whole thing off. On these two points, the raid was scheduled and carried out. 76 agents in two cattle cars, because they were just going to take these cattle cars up the driveway. You know, there's lots of those out in the farm country outside Waco. And these Branch Davidians, obviously dumb people, if they follow some fraud, you know, wouldn't even know what was going on. Agents would hop out of the car, break down the front door, 
get in front of the gun room, it was going to be that easy. Except, of course, it wasn't. The first big thing that I I find it hard to get over this. I'm sorry. I've, I've spent all these years looking at it. ATF never at all in any way tried to learn what the Branch Davidians really believed. They did not in any way understand that these were people who were waiting for an attack, that they believed the attack and a chance to die in it were their gifts from God, their rewards for being truly faithful. And hell, you could have found it out, you know, in Waco. They, people knew what the Branch Davidians believed. You could have asked them. Child Protective Services had been doing a case study of whether kids were being abused. Koresh was telling them everything out of the Bible that his followers believed. But ATF had nobody whose job it was to check out what suspects were doing or believed, just whether they were committing a crime or not, whether they were breaking a law. And so ATF could not have planned anything that could have better fit in to what Koresh had been promising his followers, that the armed agents of Babylon are going to attack us in our home, and we have to be ready and kill some of them and be killed ourselves. The ATF is extremely sloppy with stuff. They're not paying heed to the warnings being offered up by former members. They're not speaking enough with local law enforcement or individuals around town about the Branch Davidians. Uh, they set up a very sloppy undercover house just across the street from where the Branch Davidian compound yep. is, sending uh, one of their undercover guys over to just act like the new neighbor. But David Koresh realizes pretty quickly uh, who exactly this person is. Despite all of this, the ATF does eventually get that warrant to uh, to carry out their raid, which was scheduled for March 1st, 1993. Uh, what exactly was this initial plan? They had considered initially what they called surround and call out. Simply surround the compound say, come out and give up, and then wait until either the people inside gave up or ran out of food and water, one or the other. But then they thought that it could be much more efficient and quicker if they do the dynamic entry. Now, I do need to say this, at least so far as the agents themselves were concerned on that raid, you know, there's no plot of anything other than carrying out what should be a simple raid. They are not given the information to understand who they're going in after. That flaw lies, I think, with the officials of the agency. Oh, the the leadership is making the leadership is making all of the mistakes here, not the not the individuals who are responsible for carrying out the plan. Because they've right. been given a very specific set of stru- instructions. And by the way, speaking of the most shocking details from this story you tell. They didn't even have a contingency plan. There wasn't even a plan B if things went sideways. The plan B was essentially run for cover and get ready to fire back. But the point being that there wasn't a contingency plan because they weren't taking the Branch Davidians very seriously. Right. And even knowing that they've got to go up this bare hill against people who are inside who have powerful weapons, they do a couple things that are very telling. 
First, they only bring in low-powered semi-automatic weapons. Reason being, if there are some shots fired, they don't want a bullet going through a wall and hitting a child, let's say, who's trying to get out of the line of fire. In their pockets of their vests, many of them don't even have extra magazines of ammunition. They've got candy bars. They don't want the Branch Davidian kids to be scared. They're going to hand out candy, and they have certificates for Happy Meals. Once they've got the compound secured, they're going to send out and get the kids Happy Meals, treats they know these kids don't get often. One of the agents, a man named Charlie Short, uh, ATF had a fleet of one plane. They were also getting the use of a couple National Guard helicopters to fly over the compound just when the agents arrived to distract the Branch Davidians' attention. Charlie Short flew the ATF plane up to Waco from Austin. And I mean, from Houston, I apologize. And he was so sure as everyone else was that what, this will take 45 minutes? That he knew he had to be flying over the compound in Waco at about 10 o'clock. He scheduled a golf tea time back in Houston in early afternoon because the thing was going to be over and he'd have time to fly back, drive home, change into his golf stuff, grab his clubs, and go tee off. That was the degree of resistance ATF really was expecting. Despite the fact that the ATF was part of the U.S. Department of Treasury at the time, they didn't have to run every single mission through the leadership of treasury to get that okay having said that they knew that this is a big enough mission that they wanted to make sure that uh, all the t's were crossed and i's were dotted at least along those lines even if they were missing those details elsewhere and uh, treasury leadership ultimately decided to call the raid off uh, just two days before it was supposed to happen this uh being on the friday going into the weekend they end up having to move the raid up by the a day because the uh, waco tribune uh decides to publish a series on david koresh and the branch davidians titled sinful messiah the uh the first story in that series was getting published on saturday but ultimately why was the raid allowed to happen by the uh by treasury department leadership in spite of some of their reservations about things you know timing and everything is crucial just as ATF officials there are going to talk to Treasury and say, hey, by the way, we're going to do this. Treasury is being directed by the Secretary of the Treasury, former Texas Senator Lloyd Benson, who had just been sworn in a few weeks earlier. Benson is overseas at an economics conference in London. At the same time, just a few days before the Waco raid, uh, the World Trade, there's a bombing at the World Trade Center in New York, not the big 9-11 one, but one that happened previously, and people were killed. And most of ATF, most of ATF's senior leadership is in New York trying to deal with that situation. But the Treasury Department, the Secretary of the Treasury is overseas. You've got a couple acting people who aren't really sure what their powers are and aren't. A couple of them in Washington hearing from ATF, this is what we're going to do, have some concerns. What if this goes wrong? Could innocent civilians be shot? Could agents be shot? We don't think this is thought out carefully enough. You can't do it. 
but ATF officials call and plead their case. This is something we have to do. And they start throwing in things besides the guns. We believe there are little girls being raped. We believe that there are little children, infants being beaten. They even tossed in that we think there must be a drug connection. We think they've got drug labs. When in fact, one thing that was true of the Branch Davidians, these former Seventh-day Adventists, they absolutely would not use drugs, legal or otherwise. And so they then promised this, let us do it. You have our word. If we lose the element of surprise, it's called off. That'll be it. We won't do it. And based on that, that if the element of surprise was lost, the raid would be canceled. The Treasury Department officials who were in place, not senior officials, not experienced officials, said, all right, go ahead. And sadly, the probably the, the final detail that set everything else in motion was the element of surprise being lost. How was it lost? And why didn't this stop the ATF in its tracks? There have been a lot of theories, but we've been able to track down what actually happened. And it all falls down to ATF organizers, who a few days before the raid, called the McLennan County Ambulance Service to say, we're going to be conducting an action out northeast of town. They said March 1st, and they moved it to February 28th. We don't think anybody is going to be hurt, but we need to have some ambulances available just in case. Uh, one of the women they talked to when they called in was the girlfriend of a cameraman for a local television station. And she promptly told her boyfriend all about it. At the same time, Waco Sheriff's Department folks were kind of upset. They had thought they would be working with ATF on this whole raid, but they'd been almost cut out of the picture. One of them mentioned that to a reporter from the Waco newspaper. So you had the newspaper and TV, both aware something is going to happen. And so on the morning of February 28th, the ATF agents are gathered in a little place called Bellmead a few miles down the road. They don't wanna make their raid until about 9.45 or 10 because that's when morning worship is over at Mount Carmel and the able-bodied men go outside to work on a construction project on the property. But as early as seven o'clock, cameramen from the TV station and reporters from the Waco paper are making their way towards Mount Carmel. One of those TV cameramen didn't know his way around that part of the region and thought he was lost. Same moment inside Mount Carmel. The day before the first newspaper articles about Koresh had been published in its ongoing series. So this is Sunday morning. Koresh decides he'll send somebody out to get a copy, copy of the day's paper so he can see the new allegations. He sends out a man named David Jones, whose day job is being a postal worker. Jones goes out in his car, a little narrow road by Mount Carmel, and the TV cameraman in his truck, who's lost, sees postal worker, he must know his way around, flags him down and says, you've got to help me. We have heard that ATF is about to raid some place called Mount Carmel right around here, and I'm supposed to film it, and I can't find it. Where is it? 
And David Jones says, well, if you look right over there, you could actually see a corner of the building. He jumps in his car, races around to tell David Koresh that ATF is coming and they're coming right now. Inside the compound at that time is the undercover agent from ATF who was sent there to make sure that just before the raid, Koresh and the Branch Davidians didn't know anything was happening. He sees that Koresh knows. He gets out and he calls the guys in charge of the operation in the field to say, they know we're coming. We've got to call it off. But the two agents in charge there, they've got so much responsibility, so much money is on the line for putting this operation together. So much prestige will accrue to them if it works just as it's supposed to. And they make the decision that, oh, all right, they know we're coming, but they still got to get those guns. We've got time. If we go right now, we can catch them before they're armed. And so the two cattle trailers, 76 agents, are sent right in. And what they're going into, they're just targets. That's exactly what they are. Yeah, it's just a sad example, tragic example of sunk cost fallacy to me, Jeff, where you've put so much in the way of time and resources into accomplishing something that even if uh, every sign is pointing to you to call it off, to call it quits, at least at that point in time, you feel too invested to do so. And ultimately, it cost a lot of lives that day and throughout the course of that nearly eight weeks. And there are two major disagreements about the start of this raid. Right. One is who fired the first shot at the other. And the other is whether that air support that you had referenced a few minutes ago was actually firing on the compounds. Now I have no doubt. Let's say even if uh, ATF agents had maybe shot one of these, uh, these, these wild dogs that were on the property because they were barking too much. I have no doubt because the ATF was, was not trying to go in guns blazing that the branch Davidians did fire first at those ATF agents. But as far as the potential for gunfire coming from one of those hel helicopters, how plausible do you think that is? Now, the helicopters, they were not armed. They were not equipped. Every bit of space was was spent on individuals inside the helicopter. But I'm even wondering if individuals seeing their comrades down low being fired upon didn't want to fire some shots back just to try and add confusion to that situation just so did you find any evidence that it was possibly uh gunfire coming from those helicopters that ultimately left holes in the roof of that branch davidian compound i thought the best people to ask about that were the pilots of the helicopters who were members of the national guard and not atf and i went over their port testimony you know over and over they are insistent that there were no mounted guns in the helicopters, that there were no long guns in the helicopters. There were three copters, and within these copters were a total of six ATF agents, none of whom had anything more than their sidearm, a handgun. The helicopters began taking fire when they were almost 300 yards from the compound. Two of them had to immediately, after being damaged, drop into a field nearby. The other helicopter circled for a minute, then went back to where the first two helicopters were, picked up, 
one of the lead agents who was in charge of the whole process and took him back to the command center. Two things. First of all, if the only guns that were available in the helicopter were about a half dozen handguns, at 200 to 300 yards, there is simply no way that they even would have had the range to fire shots that would have reached the compound roof. Second, I spoke to members of the Waco media who were there staking out the whole place, and they are unanimous in their in their testimony. They saw no fire from the helicopters or the plane, and they insist that the first shots were fired from inside the compound at the agents. Now, it must be said, the surviving Branch Davidians who were inside Mount Carmel are equally insistent that ATF hopped out of the cattle trailers firing as they came, and at least one helicopter hovered right beside Mount Carmel and was firing straight down in. There's no other evidence of it except that the Branch Davidians said you could see all the holes punched down through the roof. And Dick DeGuerin, the defense attorney for David Koresh, who actually went into the building, DeGuerin's an experienced hunter. He said they took him up, showed him the holes, and he could tell, yes, there was firing from above. This could have been settled if two things hadn't happened. Number one, if most of the compound hadn't burned to the ground on April 19th, and second, if the few walls that were left standing at that time and part of the roof hadn't been bulldozed by the FBI directly after the final fire, they said because it was a safety hazard and they had to clear it. Mm. For conspiracy theorists, and let's face it, there's plenty of them, that just makes it obvious that the ATF were the aggressors and that the helicopters had done all this shooting. No evidence that I have found any evidence other than the Branch Davidians' personal remembrances is that this could have happened. But I will also say that I've never been in a situation where there's all that shooting. People are trying to kill me. I'm trying to kill them. I'm sure we remember things as we think they happened, if that's fair to say. But under no circumstances, as far as I'm concerned, could the ATF have been the aggressors. They armed themselves so they wouldn't do any damage. That was their goal. They wanted to have a nice, clean, bloodless coup, so to speak, so they have something to show off in their budget hearings. The last thing they wanted to do was start shooting and have people die. It was the Branch Davidians whose agenda demanded that there be death. And that's just a fact. So uh, as, as we've talked about already, I said more than a dozen. You said you had spoken with 20 former ATF agents by the time this book was completed, many of whom were on the record for the very first time. Was there either a most common criticism or a more most poignant point made about the shootout that day that really took you by surprise? The POAs, the plain old agents, to this day have two great resentments, and I think it's fair that they do. The first is they felt the promise made to them was not kept. If they know we're coming, we're not going to go in. That was the first thing. 
The second thing they felt that afterward, immediately afterward, on March the 1st, they have been shot up. Four of the 76 are killed, 20 more are wounded. We're talking about one third of the people who went in there left either dead or bleeding. The ones that aren't hospitalized are put up in a couple hotels in Waco and told stay there and don't do anything. They wake up in the morning and they do what most of us would do. They turned on the news to see what was being said. And there were ATF officials saying, we never lost the element of surprise. We don't know who said that. And they, they were, and they remain furious. And I think they've got a right to feel that way. In all the years since, 30 years, think about it. These 76 agents are being talked about as cold-blooded killers, as murderers who went in there. They didn't care about the safety of anyone, men, women, children. And it's just not true. But no one ever talked about it because they were told they couldn't talk. And then one of them talked to me and thought, well, maybe I'd write what he said. A couple more guys did, and some of them had kept documents, inner office memos, things like that. And if you look in my chapter notes for the book, you will see everyone is identified by name and every document, even if they're internal ATF documents, is identified. This isn't hearsay. It's the truth. Did you get a sense that talking to you was able to provide some of these individuals with a sense of closure over this extremely traumatic event that has happened 30 years ago now? I won't presume to say the book gives them closure. I will say uh, what I always do when I finish a book, as soon as I get the copies, I send them to all the people I interviewed. And I've had nice communications with some of them saying, well, at least our side is finally out there. As I go on my book tour, some of them are actually showing up at the bookstores for the Q&A session. So if people have questions about ATF, we can actually have the ATF agents answer wow. for themselves after all this time. I've got to tell you, all these conspiracy theories about the ATF, it is absolutely true. God-awful decisions were made by some of the leadership. And it's inexcusable, that part. But in terms of the people in those cattle trailers that day, there was no plot. There was no scheme. They were just good law enforcement men and women who were told one thing was going to happen and were sent to what, for some of them, became their deaths. Yeah, and as you No one apologized to them ever for that. Leadership never apologized to them. No. And as you pointed out, it wasn't as simple as them just retreating once they were fired upon. There was a uh, large, empty field-slash-driveway that they were having to run through to get anywhere close to cover. So they were they were stuck in their position behind— For almost cars, three hours. Behind their trailers for, for nearly three hours. And there were elements of this mission that were, that were still trying to be upheld, including— making it to that second floor with ladders and essentially getting in and, and comprehending Koresh or anybody else of importance in that building. They couldn't retreat. They were caught in a situation where if they stayed, they'd probably die. And if they tried to ret retreat, they'd probably die. Twice there were ceasefires that they attempted that didn't hold. 
And finally, the third, when it held, they had to try to drag their wounded and dead down a couple hundred yards in full view of Mount Carmel, knowing there are these powerful automatic weapons and that if somebody inside the compound gets an itchy finger, more of the ATF agents are going to die. They have nightmares about it to this day, and who can blame them? No doubt about that. There are other aspects of that day that uh, I'm just going to suggest people buy this book to find out more about because we do need to move forward here. So the FBI uh, FBI officials are actually in Waco by that night. They ultimately take over the operation the very next day. Uh, over the first five days of the siege, David Koresh sends 21 children out of the compound. As you talked about earlier, they all seem to be in 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 decent mental and physical shape, which is maybe a little bit of a surprise to some, but that's a, a detail worth noting there. You also wrote about the FBI being really hampered by several factors during this 51-day siege, uh, Jeff. That includes a lot of bureaucracy being required to make what needs to be quick decisions oftentimes, but the biggest issue involved internal strife with FBI agents in and around Waco what was the dynamic at play here that was so difficult for FBI decision makers? There were two factions within the FBI units that were surrounding Mount Carmel. One side was the negotiators. Koresh and some of his followers were talking to them on the phone. And as long as there was talk, the negotiators believed there was a chance to get everybody to come out peacefully. But the tacticians, the hostage rescue team, believed that Koresh loved the attention he was getting. There was no intention of coming out, except at some point, the surviving branch Davidians, and you know, there's over a hundred of them in there, we're talking about adults, could storm out any time with automatic weapons and do a great deal of damage. They wanted to go in, they had tanks. It wasn't like ATF being outgunned. If the FBI chose at any time, they could roll up the tanks and they could flatten anybody that got in their way. Tactical ultimately won out, but there was a further problem. The idea of inserting CS gas into Mount Carmel came up within the first week of the siege. The idea that we just put in a little at a time, their eyes would get irritated and they'd, they'd probably get flushed out. It would take a couple of days. It was on paper. But the FBI reports to, through the Department of Justice, and Department of Justice is led by the U.S. Attorney General. And during almost all the siege, America had no Attorney General. The Clinton administration was just being sworn in, and Janet Reno had not yet been approved by the Senate. So you don't have anybody you can go to with this plan and say, we want to do it. Will you approve it? Let's go get this done. Meanwhile, the siege drags on. The world media has arrived in Waco covering this every day. And if nothing's happening in the siege, they'll just write some more about U.S. agent incompetence. How screwed up was ATF in the beginning? How messed up is the FBI now that they can't bring this to a conclusion, there's all this pressure every day. Finally, Reno is sworn in as attorney general. She needs a couple days just to get into office. And then she's hit with a request by the FBI. We wanna go in and we wanna use the CS gas. 
she's concerned. She said, let's run it by the army. That This is part of what they do, see what they think. The FBI is insisting if we don't go in there, something terrible is going to happen. Either Koresh and all his followers are going to kill themselves or they're going to come out and try to kill other people. We've got to get this ended. They finally formally ask for permission. Insert CS gas over a period of two days. And she says no. FBI officials call her again. And remember, we're talking an attorney general who hasn't been in office for a week yet. You know, you've got to do this. This is crucial. She conditionally says, all right, you can do it, but the, the gas has got to be inserted gradually. You've got to promise me it won't harm children, innocent people. And she had to run it by the new president, Bill Clinton, who didn't, who could have said no, but didn't. And so on March the 19th, they start to insert the gas into Mount Carmel. However, and I know this specifically from talking to Byron Sage, lead negotiator of the FBI during these final days, FBI had presented one plan to the attorney general, doing it gradually. But in practice, the FBI had plan A and plan B. Mm. Plan A was if there was no resistance from inside the compound, when the tanks rumbled up and shoved the canisters of gas through gaping holes they knocked in the walls, then they would put the grass in, the gas in gradually. But if there was any resistance, if any shots were fired at the agents from inside that building, then they were putting all the gas in at once, screw being careful, force them out enough's enough. To this day, there's another controversy. When the tanks rolled toward Mount Carmel about 6 a.m. with those first gas canisters, was there gunfire at the tanks from inside the compound? For one thing, I don't know that even the automatic weapons could have dented a tank. The Branch Davidians deny anything like that. FBI agents say it happened. Experts who were hired by attorneys for the Branch Davidians afterwards say different heat checks prove there were no, no shots fired. ATF and FBI experts say there's proof shots were fired. We'll never know. But the point being within five minutes, the FBI put in every bit of gas they had, taken in little doses, it's an irritant. In great swooping clouds, it not only will choke you, it will make your skin bubble, but it's flammable. It's highly flammable. And just before noon, some people say the FBI did it. Some people say the Branch Davidians did it. Some people think it was just an accident because the only heat inside there were Coleman lanterns, you know, powered with oil. Suddenly, Mount Carmel was engulfed in flames and it literally burned to the ground within 20 minutes. Estimates later were that the heat reached up to 3,000 degrees inside. Nine adults escaped, all of them badly burned. 76 people, including almost two dozen children, died horribly inside. To this day, all kinds of blame is being pointed, all kinds of fingers in all kinds of directions. 
And what happened at Mount Carmel is being used by a lot of modern day militias is the excuses they have for everything from the 1995 bombing of the federal building in Oklahoma City to the January 6, 2021 assault on the US Capitol. But the fact remained, it never had to happen in the first place. All that gas didn't need to be thrown in at one time. It wasn't supposed to be. Reno was outraged afterward. The FBI lied first afterwards, saying we never used any combustible rounds to get it in there. When it turned out they did, and they were caught having done it. And a lot of the suspicious public said, well, if they lied about that, they're lying about everything else. Waco stays with us. I mean, not just as a tragedy of that moment, and it was a tragedy, but my God, look at the atmosphere we've got today, and a lot of the leaders of the current militia uprising and supporters of it, from Alex Jones to the organizers of Oath Keepers, all claim they became anti-government because of Waco. That's why I think it's so important and what I wanted to do in this book. Here's what happened in Waco. We can't move past it if we don't understand it. And there are no conspiracies, just people who made terrible decisions. And that's a lot different than some plot to try to kill innocent gun-owning Christians. How likely do you think it is that the FBI would ever be totally forthright about what happened that day, assuming that they did make at least some of those mistakes? Well, I suppose it's always a possibility there's Santa Claus. (laughs) That's a good line there. I did want to ask real quick about this, Jeff, because it did seem like they were making headway with David Koresh with regards to him surrendering. So how close do you think he was to actually surrendering on April 19th, 1993, the 51st and tragic final day of that siege, considering that he was working on his Seven Seals transcript? I know a uh, an unfinished copy of that ends up outside of the compound and looked at by a couple of religious scholars who had also entered the story during that siege. So do you think he was actually close to uh, to giving himself and his followers up? The problem with what Koresh promised towards the middle of April was that just a couple days after the FBI started the siege, he had promised the FBI that if they would have a tape of him preaching about the SEALs played on national radio, Once it was played, he and his followers would come out. And the FBI arranged that. The tape was played. And then we're told God spoke to David, said we can't come out after all. Now, to the FBI, that proved Koresh was a liar and they could never trust him again. To Koresh's followers, this indicated that God's still communicating with David and David has to listen. We'll never know if David Koresh really thought he was told this by God or that David Koresh didn't want to come out and face what was going to happen to him. But then six weeks later, when Koresh now comes and says, if you will let me write out my explanation of the seven seals, God's told me if I do this and we get my explanation in the hands of religious scholars, then my work is done. We can come out and you can do what you want to with me. He wrote the first seal a day and a half before the end. 
was working on the second seal. But the FBI had decided, and they were basing this on his previous reneging, that this was just one more way David Koresh was going to drag it out some more, and he'd do this, and then he'd say, no, God said we can't come out again. They'd had enough. They felt humiliated. They felt they were being made they were being mocked by the media, not just in America, but around the world. Everything came together. All the things people did inadvertently combined. And here we have this god-awful tragedy that haunts us to this day. It was haunting to write about. I'm sure it's not easy to read about. I appreciate from your questions you did read the book. And it's uncomfortable stuff. But how can we move on if we don't understand it for what it really was? While it was an uncomfortable read at times, it was also an excellent read. I know we're only a month into 2023, but as I said a little bit earlier, I have no doubt this is going to end up as one of my favorite books this year. Jeff, thank you so much for the time today. The new book is called Waco, David Koresh, The Branch Davidians, and A Legacy of Rage. You can get it now wherever books are sold. Thank you so much for this piece of work, and I, I do appreciate the conversation today. Having an opportunity to talk to somebody like you who reads the book and then asks good questions, I promise you it's a pleasure. Thanks to Gentleman Jesus for the intro and outro music. Hear more of his work at GentlemanJesus.com. Thanks to you for tuning in. For more of the show and to connect on social media, visit BooksOnPod.com. We'll talk to you next time on Books on Pod.